right. Well, welcome to Summer at MBC and our brand new sermon series, Salt, Light, and Barbecue Sauce. I'm excited to kick this off with you today. I don't know about you, but it is grilling season in the Henschel household. I love grilling, whether it's burgers or dogs or wings or ribs. A wise man once told me, if you can kill it, you might as well grill it. My apologies to you vegans out there. Anybody else here like to grill out there? Grill masters, mistresses? Yeah, it is time uh, to grill. And so that's how we have our stage set over here. Uh, you'll notice some props that we'll look, look to uh, in later in the service. But grilling is like a great American pastime. Over the summer, there's pool parties, there's barbecue parties, and it's great to just chill and grill with family and friends, which is why we're doing this series with this theme, because we think we know something about you. Uh, every one of you this summer, at some point this summer, you may find yourself in an environment like this, whether it's a backyard party or a barbecue or pool party, uh, you're chilling and you're grilling with your friends or family, and one of the people there, maybe a few people there, may not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Perhaps you're there and you might have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ in this kind of informal type of setting. Well, how would you do that? And we want to make sure that we're prepared, right? At the beginning of grilling season, uh, you pull out your grill and you make sure it's all cleaned up and ready to go. And in that way, we want to make sure that we're ready to go spiritually uh, for opportunities that might arise around the grill, around a backyard setting, to share our faith in a, in a natural sort of organic uh, way. And so that's really the heart and soul of what this series is all about, salt, light, and barbecue sauce. Uh, the harvest is plentiful out there, but here's the problem. Uh, the workers are few, aren't they? And so uh, I, I came across a, a, a rather concerning statistic this week uh, from the Barna Institute. They, they said that uh, in our day and age, only 64% of us feel that it's our individual responsibility to share Christ with those who don't know him. And so uh, that's a big 25-point drop from the last time they did this survey 20-some 20, uh, 20 years ago. And uh, it's a little concerning to me that only two-thirds of us feel like this is a big part of their Christianity. So my question for you this morning is, what part of the pie do you find yourself in? Are you part of that 64% who embraces this responsibility? Or are you part of the 36% who, who don't feel like it's your responsibility? Now, my guess is that most folks who attend a church like ours would fall into the yes category, but even though there's a readiness, there's also often a hesitancy with regards to carrying this out and the willingness. Because if you're like me, when you speak to unbelievers about Christ, uh, even if it's informally, even in this kind of setting, you can run into all kinds of problems. Uh, if you're like me, perhaps you're uh, sitting in your backyard and you might bring up the subject for spiritual things, and the minute you step towards the subject, they step away from the subject. Or uh, perhaps you're like me and you run into people who say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking to me about Christianity. Listen, uh, you know, my grandfather was a Christian, but the only time he ever acted like it was two hours on Sunday mornings. And if that's your faith, then I don't want anything to do with it. Or maybe you've had uh, situations that have arisen in my life like, like this. Uh, you get into a conversation and pretty soon you realize uh, that the other person is uh, trying to kind of make a fool out of you and make you look like an idiot. And so they're trying to ask you questions that you can't answer. 
And so uh, you decide that your mind is sharper than theirs and your tongue is even sharper than that. And so just as they start asking you questions you can't answer, you start asking questions of them that they can't answer. And uh, you guys go back and forth and back and forth. And just as they're trying to make a fool out of you, you try to make a fool out of them. And after a while, you realize you really haven't had a conversation uh, where you're sharing Christ. You had a full-fledged argument that requires some apologies. And so with uh, situations that arise like that, it's kind of only a matter of time till we throw up our hands in the air and out of desperation and disgust maybe say, how in the world are we supposed to reach lost people uh, for Jesus Christ? Uh, This is not an easy task. And so we want to tackle that question, that subject. That's really what this series is all about. Uh, let me just lay out the series for you on the screen. In a, in a few short weeks together, through the month of July, we're going to ask some important questions. What is evangelism? Uh, that'll be today's message. And then next week, we're going to talk about why do we do evangelism? What's the heart behind there? What's the motivation? What's the why? Uh, and then week three and four are going to be more practical. Well, how do we do that? What are the strategies? How do we uh, engage people in an effective way. So that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, It's grilling season. You're going to be around the barbecue, and uh, we want you to be ready when those opportunities arise. And so that's what this series is all about. Now, before we dig in, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, together we bow our heads now for a moment. We close our eyes uh, out of reverence for you, acknowledging that uh, really this is your harvest And uh, Lord, would you now forgive us for the times where we relate to this command like it's a burden and not a blessing? Uh, Would you uh, give us mercy for those thoughts that we have in our mind that that feels like this is a pain and not a privilege? Uh, We ask you, God, that you would uh, renew in our hearts and minds today a a stirring, uh, give us a glimpse of your heart, uh, how you see people, Lord Jesus, and give us that compassion that you had for them, uh, and we ask that you'd break our heart for what breaks yours, and then equip us, God, to walk through open doors. And when you give us those opportunities, oh, we'll be so careful to give you all of the glory and praise for what you're doing. We ask this for Christ's sake, for his reputation. Amen. It's probably appropriate that we begin this series with the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus rose from the dead, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered all of his followers together and gave them uh, this one last command, these marching orders. Take a look at Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end, the very end of the age. There is the command that we are given. It's not given just for professional clergy like myself. It's given to every follower of the Lord Jesus. And it is a good enough reason that Christ, the captain of our souls, the the author of our faith, our creator, and our redeemer has commanded us to go. But I also want to just encourage you today that it's not just a command. It's also a great privilege to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who don't even know what they're missing. There is nothing in my life that has brought me as much joy as sharing the gospel with people who need to know about the Lord. So how come we don't do this? Well, let me just tell you a story. I remember back in the 80s, there was a campaign 
that was put out by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And what they did was they put pictures of missing kids on the back of milk cartons. Anybody remember this campaign? Okay, yeah, now they have different strategies to get the word out. But um, you'd get this milk carton, and then underneath the two, usually like two pictures, underneath there it would say something like, have you seen us? And then there would be like a phone number that you're supposed to call if you had seen uh, either of those kids in your life. Uh, the problem with that strategy they found, and it's kind of a sad problem, is that although it was striking at first, over time, we as our culture kind of stopped reading those milk cartons and stopped paying attention to them, and they just kind of ended up in our trash, and we weren't really actually uh, engaging and thinking and, and looking, and, and, and it wasn't really serving the purpose for which uh, they originally intended it to be. And do you know why we could just throw those cartons away uh, with such ease? It's because they weren't our kids. Now, I have three kids, Alexandria, Michaela, and Felicity, and the minute you mention their name, you have my undivided attention. If anything were to happen to any of them, if they were to wind up missing, I would sell everything I have, I would do everything in my power, and for the rest of my life, I would spend my time either searching for them or dying while trying to search for them. If your kids wound up missing, I expect that you would probably do the same thing, yes? You know why God invites us to be part of this great commission? He has kids that are lost. He has kids that are far from home, and there's something that strikes into the heart of God uh, that wants his family to be back together. And if you and I could just begin to see people like that, if we be, could begin to see people the way that he does, we would have no problem saying yes to this commission on the screen. And when we just throw the milk carton away or don't think about them, uh, do I realize how very far my heart is from the heart of God when it doesn't really bother me that people could be separated from him forever? Our God has an intense love for his people, and at great personal cost to himself, he has given us a gospel to share with those who have gone missing. And so let me just begin the series this way with that heart for evangelism. Here's really what evangelism is all about. Let me just put a definition on the screen for you from author Max Stiles. He says, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. You can write that down. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade because uh, the word evangelism sometimes brings up some confusing and mistaken connotations, doesn't it? You think of an evangelist, you think of somebody on TV, uh, you know, a guy with a, like a white ice cream suit kind of acting a little crazy, or you think of evangelism and you think of some sort of memorized spiel that you have that you are going to unleash on some poor, unsuspecting victim of your, uh, you know, spiel. Or other people just think, well, you know, I will just be friendly to them and kind of hope they catch on. Uh, but the problem with that technique is, uh, though there's no problem with being friendly, it does fall short of the command that our Lord Jesus has given us. But here's the good news. None of those things are really evangelism. That's not the way Jesus did it or Paul or any of the other early missionaries did it. It wasn't like that. Instead, it was much more organic, much more natural. And they are the role models we're going to look to in this series. 
And let me just assert that you really only need two things to be an effective evangelist. One is you being relational, and two is you being knowledgeable. Uh, you need to be both relational and knowledgeable, and if you have those two things, you have everything you need uh, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are around you, and it can be as natural as a setting of you in your backyard around your grill. Now, I'm from New Jersey. I was born and raised here in Somerset County. This is what I uh, call home. I, I love this place. Um, for better or for worse. This is where my family is. This is where my heart is burdened to do ministry. But when it comes to religion and sharing it here in New Jersey, boy, we have some challenges. Uh, Pew Research does a religious landscape study every few years. And this one's pretty interesting. This was pretty recent. You see here that it shows 13% of our population here in New Jersey would consider themselves to be evangelical Protestants. Now, that's pretty low if you compare that to other uh, places like down in the Bible Belt, which are more like 45%, 50%. Other major parts of the pie here in Jersey are mainline Protestants and then Catholic uh, believers. Now, the next highest uh, faith here represented would be the 3%, I'm sorry, 6% Jewish, 3% Muslim, 3% Hindu, and then there's kind of a 1% other. But the biggest part of this uh, piece of the pie that I want you to notice is that black uh, little triangle there called the nuns. Now, the nuns make up 18% of our population currently. Now, a nun is somebody who's either atheistic or agnostic or just, you know, doesn't acknowledge any kind of deity or supernatural ex experience. So that's a nun. Um, we also have a lot of what I call duns in New Jersey. So a lot of nuns and a lot of duns. You know what a dun is? A dun is somebody who was like forced to go to church maybe when they were younger, but um, they no longer go and they're kind of done with that, right? So nuns and duns, we're surrounded by them. I don't know about you, but I am. There's a lot of dun, nuns and duns uh, where, where I traffic. And so uh, there's a big issue at play here in central New Jersey, and that is indifference towards all things that are religious, just like indifference. Hey, if that works for you, just whatever. And one of the reasons why that indifference is here is because of how wealthy we are here in New Jersey. Uh, financially in New Jersey, we have more rich people than any other state. There's almost 300,000 millionaire households in New Jersey, which is the largest percentage per capita than any other state. And so New Jersey becomes like this playground for the wealthy, where you can belong to your country club here in the suburbs and have your house in LBI, and you can ski in the mountains and vacation wherever you want to and work in lower Manhattan, and you know this is where you call home, and there's a lot of influence and a lot of wealth in our area, so oftentimes there isn't a felt need for religion, theology, salvation, redemption. There just isn't that felt need that you see in other places until a crisis occurs in their lives. Just because there's a lot of wealth doesn't mean uh, there's not other kinds of poverty, right? We talked about that last week. There's, there's financial poverty, but then there's, there's emotional poverty, relational poverty, and there's spiritual poverty too. And sometimes when a crisis occurs, you can have an opportunity. Uh, recently, I saw a tweet from the founder of the creator of Minecraft, that video that some of your sons and daughters might, might play. Marcus Person uh, said this on Twitter. He said this, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Uh, partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Isn't that something? 
And so there's some, some things that money can't buy. And that's where I think you and I can step in and offer some hope and some salt and light in our context. Now, we base our series title off some, some, some scriptural language that Jesus uses in his most famous sermon ever in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus gives us these metaphors that we're to take on as our identity, and I want to remind you what they, what they are. So let's, let's look at that. Matthew 5, 13 says this, you, Jesus speaking, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, back then, salt was extremely valuable. Uh, in Jesus' time, they would barter and trade just to get salt. Part of the Roman soldier's pay was given to him in salt. That's, it was called his salarium. That's where we get our word salary from. You probably heard that saying, he's not worth his salt. It was part of the way people would earn wages. Now, why was salt so valuable? Well, there's a couple reasons. Uh, it was used primarily in two different ways. The first one is obvious. We use it the same way today. Salt induces an appetite. And so really that's the first point today when it comes to evangelism. If we're going to be salt, the very first step we have to take if we want to be the salt of the earth is we have to start by wetting the appetite. Point number one, wetting the appetite. Can we say that together? Wetting the appetite. Salt was used as it is today as seasoning. Salt would make you want to eat more of that which had salt in it. It's like that Lay's potato chips slogan, I bet you just can't eat, can't you just eat one, right? Salt induces an appetite. I heard the story of a young salesman who was disappointed with losing a big sale. And as he talked to his sales manager, uh, he lamented, I guess it just proves you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But the sales manager wisely replied, son, take my advice. Your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. The same truth applies when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Our job is to whet the appetite. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, let your conversation be always full of grace. Here's your plate you're bringing them, and it's full of grace, seasoned with what? salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, Paul was arguably the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of this earth, and he's saying that my speech should be seasoned in such a way that it creates this thirst in others to hear more about this Jesus that I know. In other words, we ought to speak in such a way about Christ that's attractive and savory so that after we speak, people would want to know more about him, not less. Here's the thing, the way my words are spoken are as important as the words themselves. I know there's a time to be direct and clear, but there is never a, a need to be mean, nasty, or rude. But Jesus said, be salt, not be salty. You know what I'm saying? And now we're beginning to talk about not so much what evangelism is, but what evangelism is not. I think we all would agree that we don't really want to be that guy. Uh, that guy in our lives who's a Christian, but he's just kind of like, you know, what's the word? Weird. You know what I mean? You watch him share the gospel, and it's like just this big guilt trip, or it's like this political debate going back and forth. Uh, it's awkward, it's harsh, it's abrasive, and, and he's got this attitude of superiority about him. I've heard many Christians come across this way in evangelism. It's like their mindset is, I'm right, you're wrong, and I love telling you about it. 
it's really quite abrasive. Whenever that guy comes, people go from open to closed. Uh, When that guy speaks, people go from relaxed to rigid. But the Bible says this in the book of Jude. It says, actually, you should be merciful to those who doubt. Uh, You should have compassion and mercy towards those who have big questions about your faith, not not this attitude of superiority with them. Don't you believe you're a sinner saved by grace? What's with the arrogant kind of way you're sharing this? And so here the Bible says we should be salt and cultivate the gift of gracious conversation so that when we speak to others about the gospel, they would want to hear more about the Lord, not less. We're salt. Now, salt not only induces an appetite, but back then, uh, they would use salt for another primary purpose, and salt would be used as a a preservative. And so today, we have these wonderful inventions called refrigerators. How many of you have one of those wonderful? Yeah, great. Back then, no refrigerators, no electricity. So they would use salt, and salt would be put on the food in order to preserve the food so that it wouldn't rot or spoil or decay because salt was a, is still today, a preservative. And so salt always preserves, and I think the message that Jesus was giving his followers back then and for us today is the second step when it comes to evangelism is that we need to be preserving the truth. The first step is wetting the appetite, but I think step two is also preserving the truth. Can we say those three words? Preserving the truth. Jesus says, without you, the preservative, things around you will begin to decay And things around you will begin to fall apart because you're the salt. I know you think it's bad out there now, but if you took the salt of the earth away, it would really begin to come apart at the seams. Now, on a macro level, we are to influence our culture with the truth. But on a micro level, we are also to have a preservative effect on those around us because we are the salt of the earth. Now, in our context here. We are in central New Jersey. There's not just indifference towards the gospel. There is open hostility. A generation ago, there was still some social pressure to say that you were a Christian. Today, there's social pressure not to be a Christian. And I think we all feel this, right? How many of you just, you feel this in the air, in the culture out there? It's just kind of out there. And as our culture gets more and more cold, it feels a little more drafty to tell somebody that you are a Christian. It's a little bit more intimidating. But before we lose heart, let me just remind you of the context in which Christianity first began and spread very, very rapidly. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the pagan Roman Empire was in power. The culture was extremely hostile towards Christ followers. The pressure not to be a Christian was at an all-time high. It could even cost you your life. And yet, in that very context, that's where it spread the fastest. Now, why? Uh, Larry Hurtado wrote a book about this called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And he describes the context well. He talks about the pockets of persecution that were out there and the Roman world. And he says, actually, what you might not realize is that the Roman world was highly tolerant. Everybody had their own gods, every city, every guild, every estate. And so your faith was okay as long as you showed equal respect to everyone else's faith in gods. As long as you said, 
as long as you didn't go so far as to say that your God was the God. If you said that, well, then you had some problems on your hands. Now, two groups in that context actually uh, said no. Uh, those two groups were, of course, the Jews and the Christians. And Hurtado says, well, the Jews were kind of explained away because they were all the same ethnicity. And so they said, well, we understand why they're saying that. But they could not really explain the Christians because they were coming from all these different cultures and ethnicities, every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so there was this gospel, this powerful gospel that they believed, which was for everyone, but it was unique and it was powerful, and they rejected every other system of gods. And so as a result, they were despised in the first century. How did it spread? Hurtado says, well, there's at least two main reasons. The first is it spread through individual conversations. You did not bring your non-Christians to the Easter egg hunt or to the trunk or treat. You had an individual conversation with them. There was no visiting our big church event. There was individual conversations that took a lot of courage and boldness to share, and that conversation could even cost you something. They had to face some fears and had to come up with courage to share. And we might ask why, when they were faced with that kind of persecution, why even as we look around the world today, as other Christians are faced with persecution, are they able to share? But yet we as the Christian culture in America have such trouble with these fears. Here's the question. Why are we so unwilling to live for what others are willing to die for? That's actually a really good question. And the answer we say is, well, it's going to hurt my social life. Or I might not have the opportunities professionally if I reveal the fact that I'm a religious fanatic in this way. Or some other cost socially. Uh, Becky Pippert, who wrote one of the best books on personal evangelism ever written, Out of the Salt Shaker, says, the reason why we're so afraid is that our confidence is actually in the wrong place. She says, at the root of all of our fears is a God problem. She says, the problem is we're thinking in our minds, I don't believe God's going to come through for me here. I believe I'm going to share and God's going to leave me hanging out there and I'm going to be left high and dry. I don't really believe Jesus when he said, preach this gospel everywhere and I'll be with you to the end of the age. I don't actually believe that Jesus will be with me. It's a God problem. But of course, that's not what the scripture teaches. The Bible's clear. He will never leave us, never forsake us. Even to the end of the age, no matter who rejects you, God says, you always belong in my family, and it might not, you might not be accepted by everyone else, but, but my acceptance matters the most, and so you can find your grounding and your security right there. So you can be in need of some courage, but you don't have to be totally paralyzed by that fear. So the first way was through individual conversations. The, the second way Christianity spread, Hurtado says, is through an attractiveness of the lives of the Christians. There was this virtuousness, there was this love, there was this humility, there was this consistency in their lives. There was something about the lives of the Christians that was so appealing to them. They had this reputation in the early church that was, it was amazing. Again, Becky Pippert says in her book, the model that they used was the model of Jesus himself, the model of the incarnation, that he was radically identified with those around him, but also radically different from those around him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it well. He says, quote, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. This is what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he goes on to say, but, but if your salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
Now, the only way for salt to ever lose its saltiness is not like NaCl breaks up chemically, right? The salt could lose its saltiness by becoming contaminated, becoming diluted. And Jesus says, that, that's the danger. If you do that, then it's going to become like that, that dirty salt. They throw it out in the sea, streets and, you know, they fill the potholes and stuff and it gets trampled by other people. You don't want your spiritual life to be like that, to lose its saltiness, to, to become contaminated. Scott Sauls says, in, in contrast to the early Christians, oftentimes we in the American church are like contaminated salt. He says this, in the eyes of a watching world, our lives are often perceived as being more lackluster than compelling more contentious than kind, more self-centered than servant-like, more fickle than faithful, more materialistic than generous, more proud than humble. In other words, in, in many cases, we, we're losing our, our saltiness. You know, I think it was Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but I just don't like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. And, and this is kind of a reputation that really bothers me. This, I really want this to go away. I really want, again, to be that, that pure salt that Jesus said we could become. Now, that doesn't mean we become self-righteous and judgmental and, and isolated. It just means we're set apart for a purpose to be the salt that preserves the earth. Now, when you're at the grill, when I'm at the grill, after I season up the meat with the salt, after I get everything ready, and uh, it comes time to actually cook the stuff, right? It's time to, to, to fire up the grill, right? It's time to, to light the fire. It's time to get things going. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next in the next metaphor. Uh, he says it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So if salt preserves and salt wets the appetite, light shows the way. And that's really the third step in terms of defining evangelism. It's all about lighting up the way. We need to be lighting up the way. Can we say that together? Lighting up the way. For those who don't know Christ, this world can be a very dark Place. And Jesus says, well, I have the solution. It's you. I want you to bring the light. You are the light of the world. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. I thought you said that you were the light of the world. But in so much as you follow Jesus, you are a reflector of his light. And you now are the light of the world. Then he says this, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, now back then they would build cities on top of hills. And they would build them out of like limestone and other stone. And, and, and when the moon would come out at night, it would reflect its light on, on that stone. And when the oil lamps were going, you could see a city that was lit up for, for miles and miles and miles. The, the city was set up on, on the hill on purpose. And, and the translation is not as clear here as I wish it was. It says the, the city has been placed on the hill. The city has been set on the hill. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have set you where you are on purpose. In other words, you're strategically placed where you are on purpose. You're like a city that was set up on a hill. Now, some of you are resisting that. Some of you are going, no, 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 Pastor Dave, listen, that's not true. 
I, I got to New Jersey because my job transferred me to New Jersey. I didn't really want to come to this godforsaken place, but here I am, high taxes, lots of traffic. I'm not strategically placed here. I'm like misplaced here, if anything else. I do not fit here. These are not my people. But Jesus would say, no, 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 no. You're strategically placed here. I placed you here. Students, maybe you feel like you're like the only Christian in your entire school. And you're like, I'm not strategically placed here. I don't fit in at all here. I feel misplaced here. I don't even like these people. But Jesus would say, no, 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 no. You've been strategically placed where you are. That means you're working in the place that you're working because God put you there. That means you live in the neighborhood you live in and you're next to the neighbor that you're next to because God placed you next to them. That means you go to the gym and you go to the locker and the guy next to you sharing the locker next to you, he's there because God placed you next to him. You are strategically placed. God set you where you are. Why? To be light. You don't light a candle and cover it up with a bowl, Jesus says, right? No, no, no. That, that kind of defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, right, just like that. Let your light shine. If I could just digress just for a second. You know what else is really strategic about you? The stuff and the wounds and the, the scars in your life that you bear. Do you remember that last verse that we shared in the previous series of Beautiful Mess in Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph goes, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many people. Remember that verse? What Joseph was saying was that God allowed this to happen only to the degree that he could like short-circuit the whole thing and turn this evil mess into something good. And that's what Joseph figured out. Now think about that statement in the context of personal evangelism. You've got wounds too. Bad things have happened to you too. And as a result of those scars, there are hands to hold out there that only you can hold. There are bedsides to stand next to that only you can stand next to. There are people to comfort that only you really know how to comfort because you've been through that. You're strategically placed where you are. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 goes farther. It says, For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So just as Joseph's wounds turned out for good, your wounds will turn out for good also. You can reach people nobody else can. And so Jesus says, I want you to take this light and let your light so shine before everyone else that they would see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Notice that they would see your good deeds. I want you to live your life in such a way that when people see how you live, it's not that they go, oh, he's such a nice guy. I want you to live your life in such a way that it's not that they say, oh, that lady, she's such a sweet lady. No, I want you to live your life in such a way that you outshine everybody else around you and people around you notice and they go, what is up with that guy or that lady? They're like the kindest person I have ever met. They're so generous that I, I keep messing up and they keep on giving me second chances Look at them. They, they take children into their home that are not even their own children. Their lives are just so extraordinary. Jesus says, I want you to live your life in such an extraordinary way that people would see your good deeds and say, what is going on with you? And then when it's appropriate, you connect the dots for them and say, you know, there's this God I know 
who's full of love and generosity, and I'm made to reflect him. I want to give you a quote that just has kind of wrecked me for a while. It's by Madeline Lengel. She says this, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, not by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. No one has entered the kingdom of heaven because they lost the argument. People enter the kingdom of heaven because they see a light and they are so drawn to the Savior. And Jesus says, you're the light that I want you to shine. Now, here's the sad thing. Some people, they like never get this. They never get this sense of commission. They never get this sense of calling. It's like they come to church and they're just like happy to go to heaven when they die. That's it. That's all they really want. But I'm telling you, those first century Christians in that culture, they got this. They were salt. They were light. You read about it. They, they would go rescue these abandoned children. They would, they would give very, very generously. They would, they, would, they would care for the sick, and a plague would, would break out in their city, and everyone else would leave for, for fear of you know, the contagiousness of it. And, and the Christians had this reputation that they would stay and care for those who were infected. And when the culture turned against them, they weren't even afraid of death. They did not even fear death. And they lived their lives in such a way that the pagan community around them connected the dots. And they turned this world upside down for Christ. And here's what I know about you. The reason you're a Christian today is because somebody was salt and light for you. God strategically placed somebody in your life, didn't he? Now, they may not have known that, and they may not have thought of themselves that way, but that's exactly what they were, isn't it? You probably remember who they are right now. And here's what I'm saying. God wants to do the same thing through you. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You know, a couple of years ago, they, <clears throat> they asked me to come on staff to do a, a five-day men's intensive workshop where uh, men would come and they'd work through a variety of different psychological issues, and I was the, the spiritual leader on staff. And so men would come from all over the tri-state area. Some were Christians, some were not Christians. And it's really kind of a neat workshop. And uh, one of the men who came uh, about three months ago was a, was a physician. And uh, he's a doctor, in, and he's got a practice down in Delaware. And uh, he came to work out some of his stuff, and he did not know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ at all. And so we began to talk to each other for several days. And then a couple days in, as I peeled back the layers of where this guy was coming from, pretty amazing story, pretty amazing guy, I found out that he had this huge misunderstanding about who God really was and is. He thought of God as, as just cruel. This, he thought of God as this demanding tyrant who's just you know, waiting to punish us when we do anything wrong. That, that was his understanding of, of God. And, and I had a chance to sit down with him on several occasions and begin to share this God of love, this, this God who is rich in mercy, and, and I got a chance to share with him the story of the prodigal son, which he had never heard before. 
And right there, after a few days together, his eyes were open to the glory of the gospel for the very first time. And what a joy it was to have him experience a spiritual breakthrough right in my presence. There is nothing so joyful as that moment. And though he lives like three hours away, he sent me a text the day before Easter and said, you know what, I'm going to come get a hotel near Millington and I'm going to worship with you guys on Easter Sunday morning. And when I looked out and I saw him sitting there with his wife right there, knowing that I got to play some small part in his understanding of God for the first time, I can't tell you how much joy that brings to my heart. Now, did I know that God was going to use me like that? No. I was just being salt. I was just being light. And so let me just ask you, who do you know that is around you? I want to give you some homework this week. I want you to take out a blank piece of paper, maybe like a yellow legal pad type of thing, and I want you to draw four boxes on your piece of paper that look like this. And I want you to have four labels. First label's for family. I want you to just list out people in your family. Like in my family, both Julie and I have a bunch of aunts and uncles and cousins and all kinds of family, right? Just list them all out. Just list them out. Next category, friends. If you're like me, you got like friends from high school, friends from college, friends from grad school, you know, friends, from, you know, here and there, different jobs I've had, you've got friends. Neighborhood. We have like 30 houses in our neighborhood with about twice that many people living in those houses. So list out as many neighbors as you know their names. And then your coworkers. Now, this was much easier for me when I didn't work for a church to have, you know, non-Christian co-workers. Hopefully, all of our co-workers here are Christians, right? But, um, you know, I've had to work hard to, like, rub shoulders with unbelievers, like that intensive workshop or, you know, coaching my kids' sports teams or things like that. But you probably have, I don't know, a dozen or so co-workers you could list there that you interact with on a regular basis. So just list out all of your uh, friendship network there and, and don't do anything else. Just take some time and list it out. That's all. And when you look at your list, I just want you to say a prayer. God, if you want to use me in some way by what I say or what I do, I'm open. When I look at this pie chart on the screen, I want to be in the yes part of the pie chart. I don't know what that looks like, but God, I'm just going to pray that you would use me in some way to be salt and to be light toward those around me. As the worship team comes back up, let me just say this. Here's what you don't know. And here's what I don't know. We have no idea who is around us that is on the verge of a spiritual breakthrough simply because of you being salt and light to them. And you may never even know the impact that you have on them. And we may never even know the impact that we might have on our coworkers or on our neighbors or on, on our family members. But here's what we do know for sure. Salt induces an appetite. Salt always preserves the truth. And light shows the way. So just be salt. And just be light. Amen? Can we pray? Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you have given us not only so great a salvation, but also given us a sense of purpose and mission to be part of the greatest cause in the history of the world sharing the good news and the deep love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and who rose from the dead. Would you give us opportunities to share that great message? Would you find us as a church arising and meeting this great calling that you have given us? 
And when you open those doors, would you give us incredible wisdom to season our words with salt and to show the light that we have and to share our own stories with those who maybe don't even know what they're missing. And so we pray, God, for open doors for the gospel and for a boldness to walk through those doors when it opens. And Lord, when it does, we will be so careful to look up to heaven and say thank you. And we will be so careful to give you all of the glory and all of the praise and all of the honor for just allowing us to play some small part in your great plan. Find us faithful, God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.